This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. here with the director of DMH, Dr. Dave Cotter, to talk about Iraq in 2003. Dr. Cotter, welcome. Well, good morning, gentlemen, and thanks for having me. So in addition to being the director of our history department, you also uh, for a long time wore another hat in the active duty army as a, as a logistics officer. Um, so before we get into the details of the operation, let's start at the very, very simplest um, kind of level of all of this. Um, I think, you know, even probably the most amateur listeners understand kind of the basics of what tactics are, Um, but could you explain for us briefly what logistics are? Logistics are those um, resources and capabilities uh, that enable the force to sustain uh, a war fight. Um, One of the terms of of art that we use is, is a term called operational reach. And operational reach is fueled and enabled by the ability of the force to sustain itself, to continue the battle, to be able to uh, resupply its ammunition, its food, its fuel, etc. That that is basically it's sustaining the ability to fight. Okay, and and there's a quote that perhaps some of our listeners have run across. It's probably apocryphal, but it's usually attributed to uh, General Omar Bradley that amateur study tactics and professional study logistics. Uh, whether or not that's truly something he said. What, what is that quote getting at? The, the bottom line um, for a general officer is, is they must be able to bring their force with all its warfighting capability um, to, to, the, to, the, to the fight and be able to accomplish the mission assigned by hire. Those parameters are defined by sustainment. Um, what sustainment officers uh, or logistics officers uh, generally uh, rephrase this this ethos, this idea as the logistician draws the line in the sand past which the maneuver commander will not will not advance. Um, and and as a as a community of practitioners, we are loath to issue that that warning unless it is absolutely necessary. Uh, the, the, the spirit of, of uh, logistics officers is to make it happen, and, and we, we do a lot of uh, innovative things to make it happen. As uh, one of my Fort Support Company commanders once said, sir, we can say no because math. <laughs> uh, at a certain point, a tank will not run because there is no gasoline in it. Uh, too true. And, and you know, the, the, the physics of, of combat are, are unavoidable, um, but the application of physics is fungible, and so how you um, allocate, reallocate, and then reallocate again those resources to keep keep the uh, uh, the combat uh, capability of the formation going is the art of 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 sustainment, the art of logistics. Okay, so uh, very good kind of intro for for our listeners, particularly people who may not know a whole lot about the world of logistics. Um, Most of what we're going to talk about in this episode is the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq, in which you played a key part. Um, So given that that Colonel Nance retired, uh, now Dr. Nance and Dr. Cotter, you both were Iraq veterans, I'm going to largely turn this over to Dr. Nance so you can talk the details of it. So let's kind of start the big picture. So what are the peculiarities of the Iraq theater, of the Iraq and Kuwait theater of operations that made that kind of made logistics hard? Um, I don't want to be cavalier. We didn't have maps. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the, our exposure to Iraq um, really um, from the post-Desert Storm period 
was limited as a function of, of our relationship with the, with the post-Desert Storm regime. And so while it would have been nice to have more detail, uh, more information about what the theater was going to look like, uh, we really didn't have that. We had good information on, on uh, ports. Um, we had uh, good information down in, in the south. We had uh, pretty good information on the road networks, um, such as they were. Um, and then uh, because the main road that I would use, uh, that I did use, uh, was not even completed. Um, and so what we refer to as Route Tampa uh, was for the first 150 miles, it was all dirt. Uh, <clears throat> so we, we weren't aware of that too, actually going into the fight. So there were some limitations on information. The other thing is the tyranny of distance. There's, I mean, it's huge distances. We have to be able to, uh, to, to travel to get to the theater. And of course, many, the, the, the general rule in deployment and mobilization deployment is that, um, soldiers move by air and equipment moves by sea. Uh, and there's a speed delta between those two deployment uh, modes. Um, and so that is, a, is a, another arithmetical problem that has to be solved. Uh, and, and those challenges were significant. And they were particularly significant um, in regard to the, to the organization uh, to which I was attached, the 4th Infantry Division, because the 4th Infantry Division uh, was designed, was originally uh, designed to uh, enter Iraq from the north. Uh, through Turkey, we were going to transit through Turkey, uh, and then and then move down through Habergate uh, and into the Mosul area. That was the original plan to to offer that that, that those northern areas. Uh, that was that was um, uh, curtailed by the Turkish government, as we all know, and uh, and and so that force uh, and all the equipment uploaded in those ships um, had to be redirected to uh, to uh, Kuwait. Uh, and of course, the troops um, back at, at most of us were at Fort Hood and Fort Carson uh, were kind of on a yo-yo string because we we you know we we knew we were going to deploy the first week of March, uh, and then we were waiting for the Turkish government to make the call, make the call, make the call. That call was finally made, not in, in the manner in which we had hoped, um, and so we were we were stood down temporarily. Then we were stood back up again. Uh, to, to bring us back to readiness to, to get there, and we finally started uh, moving out in the latter part of March. Yeah. Lieutenant Nance was told for about a month and a half to two months, enjoy every week, enjoy this weekend, it'll be your last at home. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. So, because uh, I was in the 3rd Brigade, 4th Infantry, <coughs> or, or the, the children the, up at Carson. Fort Carson, yeah. So, we've been talking about roads, we've been talking about ports. So, most people, when they think about an armored division, they think you can just go cross country. You got tanks and the Bradleys. So, so, talk to us about the importance of not just a road, but what kind of road and how that actually plays into operational decision making. Well, it, it, we this was not a planned event. This this idea of moving the force in, and we all know that the initial attack, the the MEF and the, and the three ID moved up basically next to each other. Um, uh, 3ID followed generally uh, what we, we called Route Jackson, which was, you know, the, 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 the road slightly to the west, um, and, uh, and, then, and then came into Baghdad from, from the west. Um, the, the Marines uh, went up what we call Tampa, which is Route, route 1, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and had to, you know, do a contested uh, crossing at Nasiriyah, um, and then move up north. Uh, and, and the 3ID and the, and the MEF sort of met at, at Objective Saints, the intersection of those two routes. Um, the uh, the follow-on force and uh, 4th Infantry Division was the principal follow-on force, uh, followed, uh, but we didn't have a rail network, which is the standard mode of, of, of deployment. Uh, and, and those of us who have been uh, assigned anywhere uh, Germany, the United States, Korea. Rail is the primary mode for, for, for movement. So why why rail as opposed to road or anything else? Well, rail can haul these extraordinarily heavy vehicles, um, and and you don't rely on uh, on on, uh, on bridge classifications, etc. Because if the rail can roll, then it's good for, for the loads that it can carry. 
Uh, but we require special cars, uh, DODX cars, to carry our M1s, that, that kind of thing. Uh, the rail in, in Iraq was, first of all, severely limited, second of all, in, in terrible condition. Um, and it, it took us about nine months to get that railroad up and running um, after the fact, but it was never going to be uh, adequate to move uh, combat vehicles. Okay, so based on the, so we don't have the rail, so talk to me about roads because it's not something, people just think, oh, well, I'm just getting on a road and drive. So what is it about the, the roads that are significant to military operations? Well, we already sort of touched on this a little bit. Uh, first of all, the road has to have the capacity to, to carry the vehicles. Roads can be degraded very significantly by, by heavy vehicles. Uh, when uh, driving through um, uh, areas in the former Yugoslavia, Bosnia, etc., uh, you can see that to this day the roads are heavily rutted uh, by the NATO vehicles that went went through there. And just for our listeners, uh, I, if I'm remembering correctly, an M1 Abrams tank weighs about 75 tons. About yes, and and, and the the tanks, of course, were combat loaded. Uh, frequently, when 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 uh, combat vehicles are, are are transported, they're transported uh, with a with a small load of fuel. End of story. These are loaded not only uploaded with a full load of vehicle uh, of fuel, but all the soldiers' personal equipment plus all the ammunition uh, that the vehicle uh, would ordinarily be assigned to carry. So they're significantly heavier. About seventy five tons is about right. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, so the, the degradation on the roads is significant. The road to the west, uh, which we, we referred to as Route Jackson, uh, was, a, was a, a two and sometimes four lane asphalt road um, that was already begin becoming degraded by, the, by, by mid April, uh, by, by the heavy vehicles going on it. Recall the 3rd Infantry Division had used that road and, and mm -hmm. their combat vehicles, their track vehicles had in fact uh, dr driven up those roads, similar to uh, the, the Marine, the Marine uh, uh, combat vehicles that had driven up um, Route 1, Route Tampa. Uh, now the, the, the difference is that the Marines had fewer track vehicles, uh, so there was less degradation. Um, and one of the things that I had to do, one of my first tasks to do uh, in, in, uh, in very early April um, was to uh, shoot forward. Uh, I, I took my truck master uh, and we, we reconned the route from um, basically uh, the camps in Kuwait uh, all the way up to uh, Sabre Stadium in, in Baghdad. And, uh, and, and we had to make sure that the, that the, that the, via, the road could sustain the, the uploaded hets, which are going to be in excess of 100 tons uh, as they move across. Real quick, what is a het? I'm sorry. Uh, head is a heavy equipment transporter. It's a it's a very very large vehicle. Uh, the the trailer uh, has um, 40 tires on articulated bogies, the little uh, wheel assemblies, um, and then the tractor uh, is an eight wheeled uh, tractor uh, that that can move this thing. A a het can carry a fully combat loaded M1 tank. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a, it, it, there's uh, a lot of capability in that. So in the absence of a rail line, the really the only uh, practical solution, uh, other than road marching the vehicles, which would have taken a very heavy toll on the vehicles themselves, they're not designed for long long movements. Mm -hmm. The only practical solution was, the, in fact, the, the heavy equipment transporters, the heads. Okay. So as we're building on this, it's like we're looking at the road. So. These are big military, uh, you know, military grade uh, vehicles. Why can't they just go cross country, or why can't they just go over bad roads? Why, why does the degradation of the road matter so much? Uh, well, first of all, they can uh, go cross country, um, and you know, uh, the Third Division proved that, um, and and uh, and so too did the Marine, the First Meth, to prove that. But it's slow going; you can't move as quickly. And again, the wear and tear on the vehicles is just significant. We would, be, we would have been replacing uh, power packs, uh, auxiliary power units, and um, uh, <coughs> track. Uh, we'd still be replacing it, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean, because of, the, because of the, the degradation. That's on the vehicles. The roads themselves would have crumbled under the weight of these vehicles, um, and, and we would have been rebuilding the roads constantly. 
one of the beauties of, of Route Tampa being largely unfinished was that um, the, the, the terrain in Iraq, the desert terrain, uh, folks like to think sand. There's not much sand about the terrain there. It's very, very uh, hard and durable material, and the vehicles could, could, uh, could transit it without a lot of difficulty. Okay, so we've kind of uh, been uh, starting big and we're working into. So what is Lieutenant Colonel Cotter doing in Kuwait in March and April of 2003? Um, waiting very impatiently for the word to go. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, the 64th Corps Support Group uh, was the habitual um, three-corps Corps Support Group, and we had been deployed with um, the fourth division. Uh, to, it was the right task organization because of the, the familiarity and, and you know the habitual relationship kind of thing. Um, the 180th Transportation Battalion was a part of the 64th Corps Support Group. Um, but all of my units, the units in the 180th, are Alpha Alpha units, which means they're numbered units. So in your tank battalion, Bill, you had a, you had a, an Alpha Alpha designation for your tank battalion, and then you had lettered companies under that. What I had in my organization was um, an Alpha Alpha battalion headquarters, and then a number of numbered companies, which could be taken away and reassigned as, as the, the logistics requirements changed over time. But that's how sustainment units are organized, so that you can tailor and, and, and mix and match capabilities as the conditions change. All right, dumb uh, outsider question for both of you. Um, Dr. Nance, the World War II specialist, Dr. Cotter having done this in 2003. Why do we hold logistics at such a high level? You know, one of the principles of warfare from the Napoleonic period forward is to kind of push down organic elements to lower level units so they can act combined or all arms. So why do we generally hold logistics capabilities so high? Well, let me let Bill go first because I'll talk to the echelon, the upper echelons about it. But but Bill, as the user at the at the battalion level, can probably speak to that better. So there is some logistics capability that's pushed down. However, that's generally the uh, the guy pumping fuel directly into my tank. Mm -hmm. And uh, particularly in World War II, what they discovered is is that even though we had lots of stuff, what you wanted to do is you still wanted to uh, achieve efficiencies as a, what it was going on. You know, typically, the vehicle that it can get forward to pump gas into your tank is not the best vehicle to haul huge amounts. How much so, gas does it take to move a gallon of gas? Right, and, and that's, uh, that's part of the problem that you run into. And uh, For instance, in a regular U.S. Army tank battalion, or we call them combined arms battalions now because we task organize them, is our typical fueler is a 2.5K fueler, 2,500 gallons of fuel. That sounds like a lot until you realize that an M1 tank uh, takes about 500 gallons. But the reason is, is that anything larger is very, very, uh, we talked about the degradation of roads, we talked about where that vehicle can go. If anybody's ever taken a large, heavy vehicle off-road, particularly wheels, you realize that that can't go a lot of places. So the tactical sustainment guys are the guys that uh, are that kind of that trade-off between able to keep up with the force while still carrying something. But the problem is, is that I can't carry too much with me because then if my battalion is carrying all that stuff with us, there comes a point where we are so loaded down with our stuff that we can't move and we can't fight and we become a big target. So I'm going to pass this off to the, <laughs> to the higher echelons. And, and the reason you, your perception of, of most, much of the logistics capability being held at higher levels, um, you have that, the reason you have that perception is because it's true. Uh, there is a good bit of, of capability that is organic to the, to, to the using units. Mm -hmm. There's also an awful lot of capability that is kept higher so that it can be allocated as required by the situation. The core support group that I mentioned, was, was its design was to support the core um, and, and, and all the core rear elements as well as the warfighters. So you want to push fuel and ammo forward. You know, we live by this Bible called 35 Mike Mike. Class 3 fuel, class 5 ammo. 
um, uh, and then meals uh, maintenance and medical 35 Mike Mike is kind of the, 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 the code that we use those are the things that will keep the force moving uh, it you know we have to do longer longer term sustainment as well but the core support group is uh, is designed to support all the elements in the core at the core's direction in addition to the core support group you have things called area support groups and area support groups are, are an even higher echelon and what they do is they support all the units that are in an area that do not receive their support from some some other organization so when you have higher for instance you might have an Air Force element in a in a US Army Corps rear area and they're not going to get their sustainment from the Corps they're going to get it from from the area support group so that's the whole reason it's to it's to be able to retain flexibility and as, as Bill mentioned earlier still maintain an economy of force to keep the size of the tail manageable so that the tail is not wagging the dog. Mm -hmm. So who is control, uh, so you said you're part of the core support group. How, what is kind of your relationship with say the 4th Infantry or uh, all those folks? So how does, how do you tie in, your, your battalion tie in with 1st Battalion 68th Armor Regiment, which was my battalion uh, in OIF-1? When we, Good question. It, when we deployed over, we were part of the fourth division. When we when we hit the ground, um, we became part of, of of a core support command under Brigadier General Charles Fletcher, who had deployed from Europe with Fifth Corps. We became part of the Corps' sustainment capability. Um, and when that happened. Um, my relationship with the fourth division didn't really change because we were still living all in the same places but um but my, my command relationship did change i answered to colonel mike terry the 64th csg commander who answered to to general fletcher who was general wallace's the fifth corps commander's principal advisor for logistics but in truth it was general wojcikowski the deputy corps cg um that was that was managing the, the the sustainment aspect of the course fight general wallace was uh, op, was engaged in the tactical and operational portions of the course fight and general general uh, wojcikowski was was pushing the the uh, the sustainment fight and other and other parts of it okay so we've got the fourth infantry division and we've arrived at the port of shueba i remember that quite distinctly spent several nights curled up on the ground out there uh as our stuff's coming off and now the fourth infantry division is assembled in various and sundry camps in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And 3rd Infantry has done great things for, uh, for God and country and is now in Baghdad. How do we get the 4th Infantry up to Baghdad and points, and points north? Well, and that's the $64,000 question, and fairy dust is not the answer. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take a lot of um, elbow grease to make this happen. Um, it took a lot. It started um, back in the port of Shweba because um, the organization there. What happens when all this equipment is on a ship and all the people are on airplanes? It there is an extraordinary amount of coordination and cooperation that turns all this gear, this equipment, and all these people and puts them together and trans transmorphs them, transmogrifies them into a combat-capable organization. Um, and, uh, and this is another logistics uh, kind of thing, but we, this is the process of changing a ULN, a unit line number, into a TO&E organization. This, and this is very difficult because when you open the hatch of the ship, the ships were not loaded to unload them. They were loaded for efficiency. And so there might be four or five different organizations crammed on the one ship, and there's a sorting process. I had a distinct memory of vehicles getting driven off and go, oh, that's ours. Exactly. And you see a lot of that. It's like standing at the baggage carousel. Exactly, except that people are less attentive because if it's green, it must be mine. If it's coming off the ship, that's okay. So you get the idea. There's a little confusion there. And then um, General uh, Odierno, the commanding general of the 4th Infantry Division, got... Um, word uh, that he should get up north as quickly as he could uh, and General Odierno um, looked to General Terry you know because we had all lived at Fort Hood together and General Odierno knew General Terry quite well and said hey what can you do to help me and General Terry said well I have this transportation battalion but we're going to have to get a lot of hats 
And so General Odierno and his ADCS uh, uh, at the time, Brigadier General Steve Speaks, um, uh, got a hold of General Wojciechowski and they worked the, tra the transfer of HET capability to the 180th to enable the move of the 4th Division. And we got a number of units that were assigned uh, to me to be able to make this move happen for the 4th Division. And, uh, and then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we had reconned the route north. Uh, we had figured out where we were going to do a dismount, a HET dismount. We called it, just real innovative, the HET dismount point. And uh, it was just south of Objective Saints. Um, we also picked up uh, two other areas, but the principal area was going to be this HET dismount, for the 4th Division, was going to be this uh, HET dismount area, which would allow the vehicles to offload and move through Baghdad in combat configuration because it was still a contested area. There was still a lot of fight going on. Um, and then later on, we moved to what we called Sabre Stadium, which was the great big stadium in downtown Baghdad with the cross sabers. Um, the famous picture you see on, on, on all the OIF uh, posters. Um, and, then, and then we had a subsequent area later on. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to do uh, was get as much combat power forward as quickly as we could. When you say a lot of hits, <coughs> what are we talking about? Just over 400 when you include the small number of civilian hats that I had. I had the second hat, the 11th hat, the 287th hat, the 377th hat. Um, had, uh, they were assigned to me. Opcon to me was the 96th and 233rd hat. Uh, There's a lot of hats. Um, plus we had medium truck companies uh, upon which we put 113 family of vehicles, um, lighter armored vehicles. Um, these are just flatbeds. Um, I, had a, I had a company of those, 60 of those. Uh, I had a couple of light-medium companies, which were a mixture of, of light trucks and medium trucks. Uh, and we tried to move everything forward that we could. We, what we did was we ended up lining up all the hats in the desert. And the first lift we did was 70. We figured that was the largest number we could do. And we were going to move... Um, um, the the Div Cab Squadron uh, in 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 first. They were going to go first, followed by First Brigade, your Third Brigade, uh, and then Second Brigade Warhorse would go last. That was the plan. Um, <clears throat> and so we 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 decided seventy uh, vehicles was about the max lift we could do. Uh, and so the we lined up seventy hets out in the desert. Uh, all these vehicles came to us. We ran them through a maintenance check real quick to make sure what kind of shape they were in. Uh, some of them had already been on the road, so um, we, we, we set them up. And the plan had been that we would run a racetrack. And we would run a racetrack, an, uh, a continuous racetrack from, from the camps in Kuwait up to the head dismount point and then back again. And, then, and that, would, that would just continue. And we, that's the way we were going to get this, this armored uh, column of fourth division into the into the battle space as quickly as possible i have a, a quick dumb question um so we we think now of iraq as this place of insurgency in 2003 did you have to worry a whole lot about the security of this as you put it racetrack or had that not developed yet well yeah the hats are unarmed they they're unarmed and they look kind of um, ominous. They have this ominous appearance to them, big heavy trucks. Mm -hmm. um, but they were on. So one of the things that we did was we we did something that was would have been a, a safety violation of Titanic proportions in a peacetime mm -hmm. setting. We rolled with the vehicles uploaded with their crews in them. Yes. Um, and um, the the idea was that the crews could man the crew served weapons to provide the defense for the convoys. The, the other part of the plan was that there's a driver and an assistant driver in a head, but there's also two bunks in a head. And, and the idea is that the, you know, at night the crew would be able to have a place to sleep. What we, what we planned to do was do 24-hour ops. So each member of the, of the combat vehicle, uh, each, each combat vehicle would, would give one member of their crew to be the assistant driver, uh, while the second driver was supposed to sleep in the cab. The cabs were running 120 degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't work very well for us at all. Yeah. Uh, it was a great, it briefed very well. It just wasn't good in execution. 
Um, after about four days, uh, the, the continuous 24-hour operations uh, kind of slowed down a little bit because it, it, it was getting very dangerous. I have, um, I have a distinct memory of riding up on the hatch of a 113 Bonnet 50 Cal. Yeah. Uh, also, you talked about 24-hour ops. I remember, I think it was attached to 112 Infantry. My company, the company I was in, was attached to 112. I actually remember an overnight stop where uh, <coughs> we just stopped for a period during the night. And, and again, what you're yeah. doing is corroborating what I just said yeah. because after... First Brigade got in, the 24-hour ops really started to, to, to dry up. And so when you stopped at a place um, uh, near Diwania is, is where we used to, to RON with folks. I mean, it was a patch in the desert. <laughs> it, but it was, it, was a, it was a securable place yeah. for us. We, we liked the idea because we, we, you know, we had some security there. Um, there were all sorts of dogs roaming the desert and that kind of thing so and, and other things besides dogs but at the end of the day this was a secure place and uh, and it, it, it provided a place for us to do a little bit of ROing. the ROs were short the remain overnights were short uh, they were usually six hours max but it gave the, the crews a chance to recharge their batteries and get back on the road and these these truck drivers were very self-motivated it was it was, um, I mean, basically we had to tell them to slow down uh, at times. They, they, and it wasn't unusual to catch them going 70 miles an hour on the highway. I mean, it was, it was really something. They wanted to get these vehicles into the fight. Now, kind of a, two questions, but they're paired. That's what, when you talk about a HET convoy of 70 vehicles, kind of what's tip to tail? How long are we talking about? And then the next, kind of the second part of that question is, this is not your average road trip of just driving to St. Louis and back. So what are what are the planning considerations that go into moving this 70, 100 vehicle convoy from Kuwait to just south of Baghdad and back? Interesting point. Uh, there is a, uh, the HET is a, is a really, the M1000 HET series vehicles is a great piece of gear. Um, but w among its many qualities, economy is not one of them. Um, it is a gas hog, and so multiple fuel stops along the way. Uh, we would cross the border um, from Kuwait into Iraq with full tanks of gas, uh, and by the time we hit Talil Air Base, uh, we had to refuel. About how far is that? Uh, less than 100 miles. Um, I'd say about 90, 85, 90 miles. And those were the leapfrog locations. And we, we did splashes at these, and others, you know, we, we didn't try to top off the tanks. It takes too long, the, the fuel tanks, it just takes too long. So we do a splash of, of 60 gallons, and then that's the way we knew. We for, for, the, for the people that may not be familiar with how refuel and move works is, you think, oh, well, you just think of being at a gas station and being, and being in a line and the person behind taking five minutes or less to fill up a 12, 14 gallon tank, but these are now 100 gallon, 200 gallon tanks. And there's 70 of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And an hour down the road, there's 70 more coming because that's what we were doing. We were moving. It, it, I would tell you that, in all honesty, by, by, by 24 hours into this operation, there was almost an unending stream of hets between Kuwait and Baghdad. Um, we just kept them going. Uh, we had this huge number of hats. Um, we had an urgency to get into the fight. Uh, things were already starting to go south in a couple of places, and it was important to get this stuff forward. So that's what we did with this. Real quick, Ben, and how bit, how long of a uh, was the call? Was one of these typical columns? Well, by design. Uh, about five kilometers because of the spacing on the highway. This was a highway. It, it was a, it was a four-lane divided highway. Once you got onto the paved part, <laughs> so yeah. And, and this is a question kind of for both of you. Um, what you're talking about reminds me a lot of what I've heard veterans of the Red Ball Express talk about: the continuous 24-hour operations, one driver sleeping. I'm doing air quotes. One driver driving, possibly also sleeping. Um, running supplies on this kind of endless route up to the front in 1944-1945, um, and especially for you, uh, Dr. Nance, is that, is that a good comparison? Have things changed that much, or uh, logistics kind of stayed the same? In some ways, yes. Uh, I mean, the vehicles are, are 
a little bit better, perhaps, or bigger. Uh, but I mean, at a certain point, physics is physics. Uh, you put something on a truck, there you can maybe put more on there and might be able to drive a little bit faster. But at the end of the day, you are putting something on a truck and you're driving it down a road. <laughs> and uh, Well, and like the Red Bull Express, we, yeah. we broke a lot of rules, um, <laughs> and for which we do not apologize. Uh, for instance, the as a user, I appreciate that. The, the manuals tell you. Well, first of all, you would never drive with, with your with your cruise uploaded. Um, it's just not safe. Uh, but we did it, and um, and we, we did find out later on that the Iraqis thought that the uh, heads were armored, so they didn't fire at them for the first couple of days. Um, that changed quickly. But um, the, the 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 vehicles uh, could could move. Uh, at a very rapid rate on the highway, and then once it got onto the dirt portion of the highway, it slowed down quite a bit. And then the vehicles would, by design, uncover in the dust. And so the, 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 the column became basically lines uh, as, as they would uncover and then alternatively uncover to, you know, first they'd uncover to the right, then they'd uncover to the left, and, and you'd have this uh, basically moving dust cloud uh, as the as the vehicles tried to keep keep going, and there was no end-to-end -end radio communication, uh, there was no way to talk from from the head dismount point back to Kuwait except by uh, we had these little plain text messages we could send on our movement tracking devices. The movement MTS was the thing that saved us. We called in medevac with MTS when we needed it, um, but but the, the, there was no end-to-end -end radio comms until well into OIF. Now, a practical question, you were talking about the refuel spots, right? Mm -hmm. And as Lieutenant Nance just viewed it, it just saw that as temporary halts. How did those get refueled? One of the things that, good, another great question. One of the things that we ended up doing is we ended up integrating bulk fuel, wholesale fuel haulers uh, into our convoys. And then we would bring them up to refill the bags. Uh, but that was a process that took some time, so the, the, the procedure that we developed was we would bring the, the, the heads would pull in with the, with the fuelers behind it, um, and we would leave the fuelers there and then pick them up on the way back. Not necessarily with the same convoy, but part of the racetrack. When another convoy came in, they'd pick up the empty fuelers and bring them back. And, and so it, was, it all became part of a self-sustaining uh, thing, but it was learn as you go. Uh, the other thing that we learned was that um, het trailer tires um, were were very short-lived, um, and at the end of the General Wojciechowski actually ended up giving me a, a giving me uh, providing a, a a dedicated airplane every day just to bring het trailer tires in. You bring up a good point that I think is worth discussing, especially if we call back to my Red Ball Express uh, reference earlier. One of the things that's changed uh, about modern warfare compared to, to previous eras is the inclusion of air capabilities. And in Iraq, we essentially have complete control of the air. So why are we not just, instead of you know bulk-fueled hauling trucks forward, why don't we use air to drop supplies in advance of these divisions and hats moving down the road? And at that time, we are doing that. Uh, but we're doing it to, uh, to the organizations that had moved into the battle space first with meager uh, sustainment capability. Um, and so the 3ID and the 1MEF are being sustained largely by air. Uh, one of the big fights at the initial part of the uh, campaign was for BIAP, Baghdad International Airport, mm -hmm. uh, because BIAP was so critical for us to get this, the not just personnel in, but also uh, the, the critical sustainment supplies. One of the things that we did do with the initial lifts, um, well, my, my old boss, uh, Mike Terry, uh, retired Major General Mike Terry, was my CSG commander at the time. Uh, he, uh, he was... Um, he, they, they actually crossed the LD before the rest of the division did to get forward to be able to set the, the sustainment footprint. LD is line of departure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the things that he did was he, he included in his first lift of vehicles, this is just, 
Mike was a, uh, a planner for ODS for Desert Storm and had a really good handle on, on what, what the challenges were going to be. And what he did was he took rope hues with him, reverse uh, osmosis water purifying units. Um, and, uh, and so when he got up into theater, they were instantly able to provide water to, to, to the, the units that were there. The second thing is um, Americans will only drink bottled water now. And so we're, we're, we bring the rope use in, but, but it's not in bottles, and, and the, the troops were pushing back a little bit on that. So we ended up throwing all sorts of cases of bottled water on the heads in and around the vehicles, um, another break in the rules. But we, but we did other things uh, breaking the rules with these vehicles too. We, uh, an ACE, which is an engineer uh, vehicle. We, uh, the the manuals are very clear that a head can only carry one ACE. Yet we managed to get two on there. Uh, we did ask the, we did uh, make sure that the crew of the second ACE, the one that was in the back and maybe hanging off the back of the head a little bit, uh, was not uh, in that vehicle. Yeah. Uh, but, but those are some of the adaptations that we did, uh, you know, to be able to, to get into the theater as quickly as possible. And the big problem that you run into with aircraft is, is that aircraft volume and weight become a significant issue. So a C-17 can carry one M, uh, M1, not, I think they can carry a partial combat load, Maybe it's like uh, if it's combat loaded, it can still carry it, but it's for a much shorter distance because the weight drags on in that airplane. Also, fuel and water are exceptionally, in the bulk category, are exceptionally heavy. And so it's just you're not getting the quantities or the volume through an airplane that you can through the ground transportation. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't ask, answer your question very well. Sorry. Logisticians <laughs> do not look at air as anything other than an immediate fix. It's moving people, it's moving medical, it's moving critical supplies that have to get there right now. Uh, but for in, in terms of moving a combat vehicle, with except in exceptional circumstances, it's not an option for that. It just it is it a capability? It absolutely is a capability. But I mean, the eighty second has the capability to jump into into a battle space too. But if we can get in, get them in there any other way, we will do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it, that's that's a very important consider. I'm glad you brought that up. Thanks. Now, let's talk about sustaining yourself for a little bit. We talked a lot about fuel, but let's talk about the other bit, bits and pieces on a tanker. So uh, repair parts are important to me. One of the things that I have a vivid memory of is looking at all the, the pet trailers <coughs> along the sides of the road. Yeah. So can you talk about how maintenance worked on this on this long haul? Um, the Hets were beaten into submission. Um, they and and there was <laughs> I'm not sure why, but there was a there was a requirement to. If you drop the trailer, uh, the I think it was the MPs would come up behind and drop an incendiary grenade on it, so the enemy couldn't recover the trailer. Um, and so I lost a lot of trailers that way. Um, although we did manage to harvest some tires off of some, but um, the, uh, the 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 vehicles um, saw severe degradation um, beginning. Uh, Probably on the about the fourth day, we started to see a real drop in operational readiness rate (OR rate), um, and then <clears throat> and we, we hovered around 50% for a while. But then the tires started coming in. I think I told you that, that we had a dedicated uh, flow of tires coming in. The engines were extraordinarily um, dependable. They're just V8 diesel engines, and they just they were good. Um, the head itself is such a great vehicle. It is the it's. And, and not to overwork term, but where the rubber hits the road was where we were suffering the most. So once we started getting the tire solution fixed, we started to be able to get more and more hits on the road. And we did a lot of internal cross-leveling, which Dr. Nance knows is code um, for... Um, Controlled substitution, not cannibalization. Yeah, taking a part <laughs> off of one vehicle to keep the others moving. Um, there was a date, and it was, I think it was May 14th, um, where the OR rate, the readiness rate for the HETs, went above 60 percent. 
and there was much joy and rejoicing in the 64th CSG headquarters on the day that happened because now we were starting to be able to regenerate uh, mm -hmm. capability. Mm -hmm. <coughs> now, as we're talking that this, just so the listeners have an appreciation, what is the magnitude of the combat power you're moving? Because we're talking about moving the 4th Infantry Division. Well, we moved the 4th Infantry Division in. We moved the 3rd Ar Armored Cavalry Regiment in. We moved the 1st Armored Division in. In the middle of that, we started redeploying the, the uh, I, I think I told you, when, when in, in, sort of in, in coincidence with the uh, move of the 3 ACR into theater, we were moving the um, 3rd Infantry Division out of theater because the order had been given to send a 3rd ID home. Well, then we started moving the 1st Armored Division in, um, and then the... Um, uh, 3rd Infantry Division got the order to turn around and come back into theater. And so we moved the 3ID back in again, and then the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. And then it got to the point where, where we were moving anything that, that, that needed to move because the, the wear and tear on the vehicles could be avoided by putting them on a trailer and sending them north. So approximately how many tanks, Bradleys, Over 10,000. Over 12 million road miles. Over, over 10,000 heavy armored vehicles. I can't tell you how many light armored vehicles, 113 family of vehicles type of thing. Um, and, 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 and believe it or not, we sent het loads of bottled water up um, after, after a while. That's, that brings up a good question. So we've talked a lot about moving vehicles. We've talked a lot about moving, as you mentioned, kind of moving the ammunition with the vehicles. You talked about water um, and, and fuel as well. Uh, how is the food getting forward? Because this is a massive force that needs lots of food. Well, I mentioned that I had um, medium and light medium companies, and we would attach them to our head convoys as well. Um, and they, they would, the, the, these are container carrying and, and cargo carrying vehicles. And, and a lot of that's happening in that way. Um, but this, this theater matured relatively quickly. Uh, and by August or so, we're getting daily flights of, of actually fresh produce and vegetables and, and, and fruit. So it's not fun. just semis of MREs coming up from Kuwait? No, we were. It, it took a while to get off of MREs. It took 75 days to get off of MREs. <laughs> not that anybody was counting. Um, and the, yeah, and then, and then they, we started getting tea rats, uh, tray rations, which are MREs in. in in, in larger serving uh, configurations. My first hot meal was a hot a egg loaf, which was this big pan of eggs with uh, sausage bits stuck inside there. It came with the spice cake, though, so I was a happy camper. Ours was Captain's <laughs> Country Chicken, um, which the smell was magnificent. The taste was a little disappointing. But, but, it, but, but you could smell all throughout uh, Spiker, which is where we had moved all the heads. There was an airfield. Um, and at, at Camp Spiker, which is vicinity of Missoula, <coughs> where where the 180th, the, the head battalion was was pushed, and the reason we were pushed there, 64 CSG headquarters was there as well, um, uh, and it was good to be back with our under our higher headquarters. Um, but the uh, the the beauty of uh, Spiker is they had an airfield there, uh, and and that's a pretty good parking spot for a for a, a whole slew of heads. So you're talking about moving literally a core's worth of equipment, so yes. o well over 100,000, probably pushing close to 200,000. How many people were in your organization doing all of this? Um, the, the numbers were variable. I think I told you that I had like, I had six units that were assigned to me, assigned to me. Yeah. I had two that were OPCON, the 96 and the, two th and the 233rd. Um, I had others that came and went as the capabilities uh, were required. I remember I told you yeah. we reallocate. Um, at, at one time, uh, my battalion strength was about a thousand. Um, and we were spread out all over the place because my XO, my executive officer, stayed in Kuwait. And he and my command sergeant major ran the turnaround point, which had a, a, a rest center and a maintenance center. And, and the, the, the trucks would come through this, this, re, this maintenance inspection point, and, and we ended up being able to do um, from pre pretty significant maintenance. And part of that is because every head organization has a DS maintenance capability. And so my XO and my CSM would, would, uh, would catch these units as they came back in, 
and re re reconfigure them into into a, a maintenance, if you will, uh, convoy configuration, and then pitch them forward again. And that's how the catch and pitch racetrack works. So you're talking a group of a thousand plus or minus people supporting an organ, two hundred thousand plus people across the country of Iraq. Yeah, it was it was a big organization. Sometimes our trucks would get kidnapped um, by different organizations. Would 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 would, would hold my, uh, a truck hostage only because I, th I think I told you Het's a pretty good piece of gear, and the division commanders knew it, and they they try to hang on to them, and, and we understood that. But uh, I have to tell you though, getting set up for success here was was um, a team effort. Um, it took a lot of people to make this happen. Uh, General Ordierno provided a lot of the resources, but. But General Steve Speaks was the guy who really set the conditions for what was going on. Uh, and General Terry uh, enabled the 180th to do what it did. Um, and so, what, you know, I, I'm sitting here talking about what the 180th did, but the 180th was, was significantly enabled from other organizations, principally the 64th CSG and the 4th ID. And then once that, once the system was in place, and we test drove the system, once that system was in place, we were able to replicate it over and over and over again to move the rest of the core in. So uh, a question about all of these capabilities. You mentioned there's about a thousand people doing all this, and, and you've mentioned lots of different tasks, whether it's the mechanics working on the heads, whether it's the people paving the roads, um, and the people doing the, the kind of support forward and back at the, the staging area. Do do the people in your organization come into the theater with those skills? Do you come in with mechanics and people who know how to drive, you know, road graders, or do those have to be developed in accordance with the theater? Well, the folks that are maintaining the road, the engineers, uh, most of them are trained in that. Um, my, the mechanics were, were trained. They, they weren't trained for what I asked them to do, but, but they figured it out. And again, the, 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 the organization was, was very self-motivated. Um, and so that they, they, but we had some great folks too. The truck masters were, were great at setting up, you know, how we're going to organize the convoys. The maintenance bosses were very good at helping their folks understand what they needed to do so that when a truck came in, this little swarm of mechanics would hit them and they, they, would, they would check the key uh, operating systems in the vehicle to make sure it was going. Uh, and they got extremely good at changing tires um, uh, because the, the roads were so punishing on the tires, especially when you're carrying a 75-ton M1 tank. It's, mm -hmm. it, it is, it is just, it's punishing. Um, and the other thing, too, is they, the, the truck drivers uh, found, you know, different ways to negotiate the, the challenging roads. You know, the paid parts of the highway, it's just like an interstate in the United States. The unpaid part is like no interstate anywhere, uh, and, and, you, and you still have to figure out how to do that. So these are all, you know, there was, there was a lot of uh, capability in Iraq. One of the interesting things that, that we talk about Iraq, and uh, uh, it's, it's, we talked about in, in, in as two, 2003, and we moved into 2004, we talked about rebuilding the, uh, the Iraqi infrastructure, and, and I remember... Uh, talking, talking to one one of my colleagues, and he said, "We're not rebuilding Iraqi infrastructure; we're building it." Because for the years and years before uh, OIF, the Iraqi infrastructure had basically disintegrated. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when we talk about a power grid, you're talking about a, a system that could only provide power a few hours a day to the country. And, and and so now we have to resurrect that and make it. So same thing with the roads. The roads, the roads were not well. Uh, maintained and so while they had been very fine roads at one time by the time we hit them they were not mm -hmm. uh, and by the time we finished them they were not although we did repair the roads mm -hmm. while we were there so you bring up a good kind of uh, moving towards conclusion question you came into this experience having studied and learned a whole lot about logistics knowing logistics doctrine what was the difference in the doctrine, training, education side of it versus the practice side of it? Um, interesting that you bring that up. And now we're going to go back to the first thing that you, the second thing you asked about the um, uh, professionals study logistics. Um, I, I used to. Uh, 
I, I was able to go to NTC. Uh, you know, Transportation Battalion is no place in, in NTC. Uh, but I'd work with my boss, uh, General Terry, and we, we would reconfigure my battalion to go to NTC as a multifunctional battalion. So this is I, the National Training Center in California. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then, uh, and so we were able to do a lot of this kind of, uh, you know, long distance line haul kind of stuff. We got used to that. What was interesting was there, would, there was a, a, a thing in, uh, at the National Training Center called Convoy Live Fire. Um, and that was the really the only time where the the sustainment the logisticians got to got to play combat, if you will. But to, but to be able to man the weapons on their vehicles, et cetera. And um, the two times I went out there, I, I requested both times for the convoy live fire, and both times I was told, "You don't need that. You're never going to have to do that." Um, and of course, later on, we spent millions and millions of dollars setting up convoy live fire training centers in Kuwait. Uh, so yes, you do need that. Mm -hmm. So what I learned was that um, uh, we have a very short professional memory in terms of what is required. Um, we have a very, um, uh, uh, well, we have an extensive list of, of primary tasks that we have to be competent in. And one of the first ones of those tasks to be mortgaged for the logisticians and sustainers is things like convoy live fire. So that's what I learned. And when it, later on, when I, I got to command at, another, at other levels, I, I made sure that that was not forgotten. Uh, but what was interesting was when I, I used to sit in meetings with, uh, with senior general officers and, uh, and, and, and uh, a couple of them uh, come to mind. Uh, Lieutenant General Tom Metz was the commander of three corps in multinational corps Iraq, uh, was always an attentive ear to the logisticians. Um, and, and General uh, Bill Troy, his chief of staff, called uh, uh, Colonel Gallegas and myself the EF Hutton team uh, because he said the corps doesn't do anything until you people say we can. Um, <laughs> But at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the, both uh, Generals Metz and Troy had figured out how important uh, the sustainment piece was. And we learned that really, and in, in, in it was reinforced uh, on the Good Friday attacks uh, in, in uh, uh, 2004 when, uh, when the bridges came down and the lifeline between Kuwait and, and Baghdad was severed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we learned how important that is. Uh, and yet we were able to move and shift fire. Okay, we could no longer get uh, the food shipments, so it became MREs. We could no longer get uh, water shipments, so now the rope users are, are pumping. And, uh, and, and so, you know, there, there's other ways to, to accommodate. The capability is there, uh, and, and we, we have the capabilities. We get rusty in them, certainly. Uh, but, but at other, you know, when, when, when the requirement arises, the, the capability is there. So I'm going to hit you on both of your hats, both the professional side and the academic side. You've been talking a lot about the, 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 the professional military significance of kind of what you learned personally. So I'm going to ask you to kind of scope it out just a little bit, both professional and academic, historic, historical academic, I should say. What is the significance of your battalion's operations in 2003-2004? professional and academic? Um, we, got the, um, we got the division into the fight. One of the companies that I haven't mentioned <coughs> um, was one of my companies at Fort Hood, but was not assigned to me uh, during OIF was the 297th Cargo Transfer Company. This is the company that unloaded your ships and, 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 and got you from the marshalling area to the staging area to the TAA. Uh, that's the organization that really uh, lubricates the process, if you will, uh, to make those things happen. And so, historically, we learned the importance of the theater opening capability, and now the doctrine and the TO&Es reflect that. Um, uh, from a professional point of view, when I, when I came out of uh, colonel-level command and I came back to the schoolhouse, to be the director of the Department of Logistics and Resource Operations. Um, I worked with some of the faculty who were also OIF uh, experienced people uh, to um, move to a new, new type of, uh, of academic regimen for our sustainers 
uh, and it's this theater opening planning uh, process that we, we talk about. Uh, and so that course was born uh, while I was here uh, in that role. Uh, and then <clears throat> I've come since I've come back as a member of the history department, I still participate in those uh, those uh, TSPP, the theater. Uh, opening uh, planning process um, briefings every year uh, because that is is where the is where we make our money. Uh, we used to spend a lot of time on support operations, um, but at the end of the day, support operations is, is a is a skill. The idea of being able to support a brigade or a division is a skill that you really should pick up as a captain and then hone as a major. But as a major, you know, our students here are, are primarily majors. Uh, or rising captains, um, they are the ones that are going to be doing the theater opening, the, the the ability to close a force into a theater, and that's probably the the, the biggest step we've made forward in, in terms of doctrine. And I didn't do this in a vacuum either. Uh, Major General Jim Chambers was the CASCOM commander at the time when I was the director down there, uh, and he he and I talked about theater opening and, and, and being able to do that, vice the, the support operations. And, and just one caveat there, I did, we didn't mortgage the support operations piece. We just put more emphasis on the theater opening planning. And this is a shift from the U.S. Army that had pretty much based its entire logistics off of Western Europe yes, or small brigade rotations to uh, Kuwait. Oh, there's a lot of scar tissue here. We learned a lot of stuff on the fly and many of the lessons were painful, but the, what I would say is the lessons stuck uh, because the, the, the department formerly known as Delro, Department of Logistics and Sustainment Operations, uh, still executes TSPP every year, the, the theater opening planning, the theater planning course, and, um, and, and, uh, and it is actually a growth industry. Uh, more officers are taking it. Yeah, Dr. Carter, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.